Good evening. You're listening to WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. I'm Jessica Watts, and this is WNUR News at 6. Tonight, all about boba in Evanston. Regional dialects, every corner, nook, and cranny of the U.S. Death Cafe event, and the B-List. Those stories and more coming up. From Northwestern University, this is WNUR News at 6. When you're in the mood for a sweet treat, boba is the perfect fix. But in Evanston, the options are almost overwhelming. Gabby Shell finds out which tea houses students prefer. If you've walked around downtown Evanston, chances are that you've passed by a boba shop. From Kung Fu Tian Clark to Mogi Tian Sherman to the newly opened Ume Tian Church Street, the Evanston boba scene is ubiquitous. But why are there so many boba places? And what draws people towards their favorite locations? College kids love like a silly little drink. That was Julia Beckendorf, a Medill sophomore and boba fan. Her boba go-to, Happy Lemon, located on the corner of Davis and Chicago. But I like that place because it's close to campus. Um, it's pretty easy. I think from Allison, it's like literally five minutes. But with a boba shop on virtually every street and the small downtown stretch, convenience can't be the only factor. For Beckendorf, there is a sense of security in sticking to the same store. I think I'm pretty open to trying like new places or like exploring, but like when there is one place that I like, I feel like I will go back. But I feel like once I've found like one thing, on a menu, I'll just get the same thing every time. So that's why I still go to Happy Lemon. When asked about her favorite Evanston tea house, Nina Gupta, Weinberg freshman and another Happy Lemon devotee, agreed with Beckendorf that its proximity and quality helped Happy Lemon stand out from its competitors. It's one of the closer ones. And also I've never gotten a drink there that I haven't liked. Like I got the jasmine green tea. Um, and I think I got the jasmine green milk tea also. Those are both pretty good. For others, the choice in boba shop is about something a little deeper. Ziye Wong, a former barista at Mogi Tea, noticed a trend in which students were frequenting her store. Mogi in particular struck, stood out to me as somewhere where a lot of international kids would go to. Yeah, rather than like Happy Lemon, I feel like it's more like everyone uh, goes to it. And I think that's partially because Mogi um, is a Chinese brand maybe, and Happy Lemon is actually an American brand. The differences in boba shops aren't just limited to the location and the customer base. While searching for a late night treat, Wong noticed a significant variation between tea houses. I was looking at Uber Eats the other day, and Kung Fu Tea for their uh, brown sugar was like $6, whereas for Mogi, like ordering Uber Eats would be like $7.00, so like it was like a good percentage, you know, more expensive for the same, like, you know, size. Part of the difference in price point may come from the quality of the ingredients used. Where Kung Fu Tea uses powders and syrups often in their drinks. Mogi uses like, prides itself using real fruit and uh, cooking our own boba every single day. Actually like sliced mangoes and putting it in a blender and like adding green tea. I thought that was like a really authentic like you know kind of drink. It wasn't like there was any sort of weird like you know additives or anything like that. The higher price point does shape the customer base. Because Mogi customers are primarily students. 65% students and then like another 35% like uh, 
adult. The cost of the drinks was often a bit of a barrier, too high for it to become a regular habit. It's a place you go for a treat, you know, like actually to treat yourself. Generally, the cost of boba tends to be on the pricier side, with 16-ounce drinks ranging in price from $5 to $10. Compared to a coffee of the same size, which often ranges from $4 to $6, it's no wonder that the coffee shops around Evanston are consistently more packed. But the more I talked with these boba connoisseurs, the more I realized that the emptiness may be by design. Unlike the coffee shops, which boast a large seating area and a carefully curated theme, most of the tea houses are minimalistic in decor and space, offering only a handful of chairs to sit in. Beckendorf, raised in the Chicago suburbs, noted that Evanston's shops differ from the tea houses back home. Around here, I feel like it's kind of like they want you in and out. Gupta noticed the same thing coming to Northwestern. Back at home, she would spend lots of time at her favorite tea house, Cha House, a North Carolina chain. Their whole vibe is like aesthetic, with like plants and like um, they sell little like aesthetic things like squishies, and it's just really cute. Like it makes it it makes you want to stay there and hang out. Um, but it's nice because I used to go there with my sister and we would study. It just has like a good vibe. Instead of studying at a tea house here, Gupta instead prefers the more spacious cafes, like Colectivo and Coralie. Beyond the aesthetics of Evanston Boba, I wanted to know what kept people coming back for more. I set out to find what was in the cup of perfect boba. I started with Wong, who told me what it takes to make the best cup. Memorization skills, love, and district manager. Fair enough, but I wanted something a little more concrete. Gupta, who ran a boba review account back in North Carolina, broke down her big three categories. The first one was an overall rating, taking into account like everything, including like the customer service, um, the drink, like the menu, and how many like options they had. And then we had like a milk tea rating or fruit tea, and then we had a boba rating, which is like kind of subjective because it depends on like what type of consistency or texture you like in boba. For Beckendorf, the quality of the tapioca pearls was the make or break ingredient in a good drink. It's pretty hard to mess up just like a drink or if you're just getting like a black tea or whatever, but if your boba is like undercooked, it really just like ruins it for me. I suppose it's no surprise that it's the boba that makes, well, boba good. To close out my piece, I wanted to get some good drink recommendations for the next time I'm in the mood for a sweet little treat. Wong told me the most popular drink she made at Mogi. The most common order I saw was mango pomelo, uh, mango panel tea slush. Yum. But for those who are less fruit inclined like me, Gupta and Beckendorf had their favorite drinks to share. I like um, the milk cheese and I like more of like the earthy flavor, like oolong or matcha. And I like milk teas. Um, and then in terms of the boba, I like it when it's like, like when you get it in the cup and it's like warm at the bottom and you can feel it and it's like fresh. My go-to drink is taro smoothie with boba and then like you modify the ice to like half, I think, which is kind of weird because I don't know. I just don't like that much ice in my drinks. And then you do the sweetness at like 75%. Writing this story definitely worked up my sweet tooth, but at least now I know what my next treat will be. See you guys next time. For WNUR News, I'm Gabby Shell. Is it water fountain or bubbler? Soda or pop?
Allison Rauch has the scoop on all the words and phrases said in different ways across the U.S. Down to listen to this package with some food and a drink. You've got a thick roll layered with cheese, cold cuts, maybe even some lettuce. So are you eating a sub? Or is it a hoagie? Or a hero? Or even a grinder? Okay, now you take a sip of your carbonated sugary beverage. Are you drinking soda? Or is it pop? Or even a Coke? Doesn't matter if it is Coca-Cola you're drinking. What's up with all these different words for the same things? Well, it has to do with regional dialects. Believe it or not, a country as big as the United States is bound to have some differences in speech, and it all depends on where you're from. Yeah, so there are multiple different factors that can actually impact why, the reason why we have regional terms and dialects. Some of it is historical, geographical, social, and cultural factors. That's Ashley Chung-Fat Yim. She's a research assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Northwestern University. Chung-Fat Yim described how geography in particular plays into the development of regional dialects. In the past, there were geographical barriers, such as like rivers and mountains, that actually created isolated communities. And over time, these isolated communities actually developed their own distinct dialect or terminology that set them apart from their neighboring regions. But we know that there's also been migration and there's been migration patterns and language contact that led to the spread of different languages and dialect features that transferred from one region to another. So when people move to a new area, they bring their own languages with them, which can influence the local speech patterns and vocabulary. Colonization also plays a role in shaping local dialects. While colonizers often impose their own languages, colonized people also maintain aspects of their native languages. This can lead to the creation of new dialects. So this is actually what happened um, to the language that I speak back at home. I speak um, Mauritian Creole. And Mauritius was colonized by European countries, so like the Dutch, French, British, and the interaction between like the European colonizers and African slaves laid the foundation for the development of Mauritian Creole. And French became like the dominant language of like administration, education, and culture, which is why like oftentimes when somebody who speaks French, who knows French, listens to like the language I speak with my parents, they'll recognize certain words and they'll be, be able to decipher like what we're saying. Another factor that influences local dialects is immigration. We know that different ethnic groups, they like settled in different specific regions. And as a result, they brought their language and dialect with them. And over time, these like linguistic influences, they blend with the local language, creating these unique regional um, dialects, terms, and vocabulary. In the Midwest, for example, high rates of Polish and German immigration led to some unique region-specific phrases. When I first came to campus, there was a sign above the Memorial Union that said, I thought, brats on the terrace. And I thought, why would they advertise really little children? <laughs> So I quickly learned that brats were not brats <laughs> and that everybody here knew that, but not people in any of the other places I had lived. Nowadays, of course, they're all over the place, but that was a shock at first. That's Joan Hall. She's the chief editor emerita of the Dictionary of American Regional English, or DARE. DARE is a project based at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. It was the, the brainchild, really, of Professor Frederick Cassidy. 
And he got started first by doing a sample survey of Wisconsin to try to see whether the questions he had in mind actually had some good answers. And then he used those as the basis for the nationwide survey that started in 65. And they had selected a thousand communities across the country. And the people they were interviewing needed to have been born there and stayed in that community their whole lives. So that way we could really get an idea of the regionality of their responses. The initial interviewing period for DARE lasted from 1965 to 1970. Today, as language continues evolving, they continue adding to their entries. In some ways, language is changing due to increased intermingling of communities. Well, originally, the differences in dialects were basically based on the kinds of people who came to those communities in the beginning. And as people moved west in different waves, those original dialects moved further toward the the west coast. So broadly, dialectologists talk about um, four major regions, north, north Midland, south Midland, and south. But uh, these days, things are not that clear. However, one main purpose of Dare's work is to push back against the idea that American English is becoming homogenized. To some extent, it's true. Um, For instance, when we asked a question about what do you call a big sandwich in a sandwich in a long bun with meats and cheeses and lettuce and tomato, we had some marvelous maps. A hero was in New York, a hoagie was in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, a grinder was in the Northeast. And those were just very, very well-defined. Now, if we were to ask the same question again, I'm sure that sub would be all over the country because of the Subway franchise. But at the same time, I'm sure that we would find regional patterns for the others. They would be broader and more scattered around the edges, but there's still a pattern there. Chung Fat Yim also made the point that in some ways, social media can actually help with accent and dialect preservation. I also think that technology allows for you to have like more exposure to diverse languages. It allows you to also like preserve these languages. Like for me, like Mauritian Creole, I'm, I'm sure like a lot of people have not heard of it before. And social media and technology allows you to have some kind of like digital footprint of that. So keep on enjoying your hoagies and grinders, your soda and pop. Drink from the bubbler or the water fountain and put your trash cans out on the tree lawn or the road verge. You're preserving local culture after all. For WNUR News, I'm Allison Rout. WNUR's annual fundraiser, Phonathon, is happening right now. Phonathon ensures that our station can continue to be a voice and a guiding light for underrepresented tastes and to be a place where generations of Northwestern students can form friendships lasting a lifetime. Donations help us stay ad-free, host music events, maintain our equipment, and so much more. We greatly appreciate whatever you can give via our Catalyzer page, which you can find by going to wnur.org and clicking Donate. Thank you so much for listening. Warning, the upcoming story contains mention of death. We're all going to die, and while some of us don't like to confront that notion head-on, there are productive ways to deal with how to handle death.
Sophia Kesa has the story. We're all going to die. Literally no one lives forever. There will come a time when we each individually cease to exist. And I don't know about you, but to me that's a terrifying thought. And even though death happens all the time, I still find myself facing this sort of death anxiety about losing my family and friends or even my own death. But I'm not the only one, as Nick Jenkins, a therapist at Counseling and Psychological Services at Northwestern notes. We all rationally understand it, but until you go through it, it's, it's, it's different. So how can we prepare ourselves for death or deal with it after the fact? How can we tackle the topic of death while still in life? Jenkins presents a possible first step. Part of it is to recognizing that a lot of these things, it's normal. And those feelings that people have are normal because you're going through something that is so huge. And sometimes acknowledging those feelings may be enough for some people, which is great. But this isn't an issue with a one-size-fits-all type solution. So where can you go from there? There's a misconception that people who have had someone die don't want to talk about it. And we think that if we bring it up, we're going to make things worse. And while that is true in some, some cases, almost always what I've found, especially after doing this, that people really want to talk about that. That's Mel Kaiser, an artist who works for Northwestern's Departments of Art History and Classics. She also helps start the Death Studies Research Workshop here at Northwestern. The group looks to create a space to address the topics of death and dying with a focus on learning more about what death means and can look like. So just talking about it in these sort of academic settings is it allows people to dip their toe into talking about death and um, just by talking about it and saying it out loud it tends to make people feel better. The group has hosted reading groups, talks with various professionals who dabble in death, and even made a trip over to the Field Museum to see flesh-eating beetles. They also have an upcoming event in Austin, Texas this May in which Kaiser and others will perform a funeral procession with a casket. But the catch? There's no specific body or object that's in the casket so that people can come to mourn and grieve for whatever they need to mourn and grieve about. So there are two other ways you can confront death, through an academic setting or through something more artistic. So again, if that works for you as a way to confront this big topic and the feelings associated with it, great! But if not, there are still other avenues. Another option is the Death Cafe. For those not familiar, Death Cafes originated in Switzerland around 2004. The goal of these events is to provide a space for group discussion about death without a sort of set agenda in a more relaxed atmosphere. And of course, cookies and tea and other typical cafe fare are also provided too. Alejandro Salinas runs some Death Cafe events in the Chicago area. Even coming to a Death Cafe, people think it is very, it's gonna be like morbid or depressing. Um, and we're often laughing and very curious and open and um, expressive and appreciative of life. While the topic may seem grim, death cafes are able to give people a safe space to process death and hear different perspectives which can then shift their own. And by having this space of reflection, people are able to take a look at what it means to live. We talk so much about death, not because we're morbid or anything, but because we love life so much. Um, and there's so much to live for and be excited about. After interviewing Salinas, I actually attended the Death Cafe being held that night. And it was one of the most profound things I've ever experienced. It isn't for everyone, but at least for me, it helped me feel a bit better about my place in this world and appreciate all the people I have and the life I live. I got to hear what other people thought about death and the afterlife from their own experiences, which helped me shape my own perception of what it means to die. 
but more than anything, it made me want to put more care into how I spend my time and to make sure I'm appreciating all I've been given. But even if death cafes aren't for you, Salinas points out that there are still a multitude of ways to demystify death. Just having any question, you know, even, even as simple as asking about your grandparents, you know, getting stories of the dead, uh, honoring the dead, remembering the dead, or taking a walk in a cemetery is a really easy, simple way. The end of the day, though, death and our own relationship to it is a very personal thing. Nick Jenkins probably says it best. There's no necessarily right way to, to grieve. And yes, absolutely is a difficult thing to think about. But by confronting death and the question of what exactly it means to die head on, someone can feel less scared and less alone when it comes to dealing with this unknown. Because yes, everybody dies, but everybody gets a chance to live too. It's up to us to what we do with that precious time. For WNUR News, I'm Sophia Kesa. The B-List is here bringing you another week of pop culture moments and celebrity happenings. Basil Fruit has the hot topics to keep you informed. To the B-List, your weekly roundup of celebrity mess and pop culture. This week, SAG Awards, Olivia Rodrigo, Wendy Williams, and figure skating. The 30th annual Screen Actors Guild Awards were held on Saturday. Emmy favorites The Bear and Beef expectedly snagged a few trophies while Oscar frontrunner Oppenheimer dominated the motion picture categories. Barbara Streisand was honored with the SAG Lifetime Achievement Award, with actress Jennifer Aniston praising the legend for her work in entertainment. In music, Olivia Rodrigo kicked off her second concert tour at Akershire Arena near Palm Springs, California last Friday in support of her sophomore studio album Guts. Rodrigo is set to make 54 stops throughout the United States and Europe across 77 dates, ending the tour in Inglewood, California on August 17th. In Celebrity, the documentary Where is Wendy Williams was aired on Lifetime this past Saturday and Sunday, coming just days after the famed host's diagnosis of aphasia and frontotemporal dementia. The four-part series, which chronicles Williams' struggles with her health after her last talk show appearance in 2021, goes in depth about the guardianship she was placed under in 2022. In sports, four new appeals filed at the Court of Arbitration for Sport are causing further delay in awarding the medals from the 2022 Beijing Olympics figure skating team event. The appeals are coming after the disqualification of Russian figure skater Kamila Vaeva due to doping, of which caused controversy due to the International Skating Union's reordering of team points totals that left Canada off the podium and Russia in the bronze medal spot. Finally, a live-action adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender was released by Netflix last Thursday, receiving lukewarm reviews from fans and critics alike who praised the performances of the cast but were iffy on its loyalty to its source material. That's all for the B-List this week. Check in next Monday to hear about what happens this week in pop culture. For WNUR News, I'm Basil Free. Now for a brief look at the forecast. The weather will continue to be much warmer the next couple of days with temperatures in the low 50s to mid 60s. There is a high of 65 degrees tomorrow afternoon, a perfect day if you're looking to spend some time outside. However, we will welcome the cold back on Wednesday with temps in the low to mid-20s and 30s. Taking a look into the headlines in Evanston, Chicagoland, and across the nation and globe. Warning, the following headlines contain themes of gun violence. Last night at 10.56 p.m., NU's alert system notified students of an active threat on campus. Students were instructed to run, hide, fight, take shelter, barricade doors, and await further information. 
At 11.07 p.m., students were alerted that NUPD was responding to reports of shots fired at 70 Art Circle Drive. Finally, an all-clear was issued at 11.42 p.m. Also last night, two gunmen opened fire in a home on the south side of Chicago. Three people are dead, including a 14-year-old boy, and one other person was hospitalized. One of the victims is unidentified, and no arrests have been made. In national politics, the Supreme Court has express, expressed skepticism in social media regulation put into place by Florida and Texas legislatures. After nearly four hours of arguing, the justices appear divided on what laws fall under the First Amendment. Other arguments include debates on which platforms are in play and the boundary between censorship and content moderation. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on X at WNUR News and Instagram at WNUR News 89.3. You can listen to these and other WNUR News stories on our website, WNURnews.org. That's WNURnews.org. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producer today is Jesse Chen, and our reporters are Gabby Shell, Allison Rauch, Sophia Casel, and Basil Free. In Je- I'm Jessica Watts. Catch our next newscast Wednesday, February 27th. Now back to scheduled programming.